too, is that there's, the venture capital system here is pretty remedial. And so what happens is you get a lot of companies that start up and they get about 20 to 50 employees, but they never expand beyond that because they tend to go public very quickly on the startup board, what they call the mother's board, and then they have to worry about shareholders. So companies here, when they do, you know, when they do open their doors, they grow to you know, 50 employees or so, but they, they never get to the 100 employees or the 500 employee stage, and so they're kind of stunted in terms of growth. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Good explanation. That's William Pesic, Tokyo-based journalist and author and regular Money Talk contributor. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.2%. The SX200 also slipping a little bit more now, down 0.6%. Shares in South Korea have opened a quarter of a percent lower. And it looks like the Hang Seng is also going to open about a quarter of a percent lower in uh, just under an hour's time. In the commodities markets, uh, not much movement. Uh, Brent crude oil pretty stable at $82.20 a barrel. Gold is also unchanged at $1,863 an ounce. Pretty well unchanged across the board this morning. So we'll see if there's any difference tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Please do join me then. Uh, stay tuned for back chats with Jim Gordon and Ada Wong in a moment. The weather forecast for today. Sunny periods, maximum temperature of around 26 degrees. And then mainly cloudy the next few days. Sunny periods during the day, and then it's going to become much cooler early next week. It's 22 degrees right now, 69% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half with the news. Here's Andrew Chorosky. Government expert advisors have agreed to recommend lowering the age limit for Sinovac to three-year-olds. Priscilla Ng reports. The advisory panel on COVID-19 vaccines met to discuss suggestions to give both Sinovac and BioNTech vaccines to younger children. The experts said they concluded that Sinovac was safe for those aged between 3 and 17 years old to receive the Sinovac vaccine. They added that they had gone through data from Sinovac, real-world data from the mainland, as well as initial data from Phase 3 clinical trials in countries like South Africa and Chile. But for BioNTech, the experts suggested the government should demand for more relevant information from the supplier, Fosun Pharmaceutical. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has previewed the virtual meeting between President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden that will take place at 8.45 a.m. She was speaking at her regular press briefing. You've heard the president note in the past that he is, uh, President Xi is somebody he's spent time with, he's had face-to-face conversations with, and because of that, the president feels that he's able to have candid discussions uh, with President Xi, uh, someone where he can raise, whom with whom he can raise directly areas where we have concern, whether it's security issues, whether it's economic issues, uh, whether it is human rights issues, and he will certainly do that uh, this evening during the call, but he will also look for areas where we can work together uh, and where there are areas where there is uh, a co- you know cohesion of, uh, of opportunity. President Joe Biden has signed into law the biggest U.S. infrastructure revamp in more than half a century at a rare bipartisan celebration at the White House. The 1.2 trillion U.S. dollar package will fix bridges and roads, change out unhealthy lead water pipes, and build an electric vehicle charging network and expand broadband internet. Today, We're finally getting this done. So my message to the American people is this. America's moving again, and your life is going to change for the better. Because of this law, next year will be the first year in 20 years American infrastructure investment will grow faster than China's. 
will once again have the best roads, bridges, ports, and airports over the next decade. It will lead the world into the 21st century with modern cars and trucks and transit systems. And the United States has denounced Russia for conducting a dangerous and irresponsible missile test that blew up one of its own satellites creating a debris cloud that forced the International Space Station's crew to take evasive action. The U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price said the destructive satellite test of a direct-descent anti-satellite missile against one of its own satellites was reckless. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On this morning's programme, we're talking about a a number of COVID-19 updates with government advisers agreeing to recommend lowering the age limit for the Sinovac vaccine to children as young as three years old. The government statement said the advisers had studied information provided by Sinovac as well as data collected in the mainland and from clinical trials in countries such as South Africa and Chile. For the BioNTech vaccine, it said uh, the experts should seek more information from its mainland supplier, Fosun Pharmaceutical. The statement added that the Secretary for Health would make a decision on the matter as soon as possible. Meanwhile, a new quarantine hotel for foreign domestic helpers will be available from next month. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 and joining us uh, now on the line, we have uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and also Lao Yulong, Chair Professor of Paediatrics at the Department of Paediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, also at the University of Hong Kong, and a member of the COVID-19 Advisory uh, Panel. Um, uh, good morning to you both. Um, uh, Professor Lau, um, hello. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, perhaps uh, could you just uh, explain to us a, a little bit more about, uh, about the thinking in this uh, recommendation that uh, children as young as three should be eligible uh, for, uh, the, uh, for the COVID-19 uh, from Sinovac? For any vaccine to be used in children, safety is of the primary concern, in particular in COVID. Uh, The reason being, uh, in Hong Kong, now we are having what we call a low or zero COVID strategy. So the risk uh, to anyone, uh, but in particular children, is quite low. So the safety is of the utmost uh, concern. Um, In fact, um, what we have actually um, looked into yesterday uh, actually comprise of uh, several components, and I'll go through it one by one. Uh, initially, obviously, any vaccine to be used must be safe, but also effective, uh, and so on. So these are the two um, principles. Uh, in terms of the safety data, obviously, uh, for CoronaVac, that is the Sinovac vaccine, they've only got the phase one and phase two uh, study published, and that involves several hundred uh, children of that age category. And they use what we call the immunobridging, and that has been recognized by FDA, that is the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, uh, to be good enough as a substitute for what we call efficacy, effectiveness, um, 
in the real world in a sense that when you cannot or cannot do it very easily, a phase three study, or perhaps concurrently, you've got a phase three study ongoing. And therefore, looking at the antibody response for that group of children in the phase one and phase two, plus our own local data, for that group of children, what they can do in terms of mounting an antibody response is as good as adults, if not better. So I suppose for that parameter of substitute, for effectiveness of efficacy, uh, we've reached at that threshold as recognized uh, by FDA as well as the immunobridging. But as I've mentioned, safety of utmost uh, sort of importance in this group of uh, age group because children, the personal benefit of getting the vaccine in Hong Kong is at the moment because of the zero COVID strategy is next to zero because they aren't going to get, if, even if they get COVID, they do not actually suffer uh, enormous disease. Uh, half of them will be asymptomatic or mild. So uh, in order to gain the confidence of our parents, of the young children or adolescents, the safety is of number one concern. So in terms of the safety for any even big phase three study, it will not be more than a few thousand or 10,000 or 20,000. So for the rare events uh, like myocarditis or very rare autoimmune or inflammatory complications, you will not see it until you do what we call a post-marketing survey or what we also call a phase four study. And that is what we call the real world data. So basically, uh, when authority given emergency use uh, for that particular vaccine, because it's emergency use, so it's a very stringent criteria for the companies, for the hospitals and doctors to report what we call adverse events uh, following immunization. And that's what we've also examined uh, yesterday. Uh, and the company submitted a dossier of over 400 pages, and uh, it comprised very detailed information on this AEFI, that is uh, adverse events following immunization. And that data is based on 100 million doses administered to 50 million adolescents, that is the age group in the secondary school uh, children. And we look at every single item very carefully, and they've classified over 20 big classifications, and under each classification, there are multiple small classifications. I've counted it this morning just for your interview, Jim. Yeah. It's over 250. Mm. And when we look at all the data, especially say myocarditis, myelitis, valves, and so on, uh, the rate is no more than uh, the background rate. So we feel that on that account, on safety, uh, we are quite comfortable, at least for the adolescents, because that's based on 100 million doses on 50 million uh, men in Chinese uh, secondary school. And children. But of course, we are mindful of the phase three study is very important. So we also look at the preliminary data from the phase three. That phase three study is going to be conducted in several countries, including South Africa, Chile, and so on. It comprises of 14,000 uh, children of that age category. I think actually the, the age bracket is huge. It's six months, you know, to 17 years old. Uh, so of course, that will be ongoing, and they've enrolled about 2,000 and look at some of the safety data of about 700 children, and they have very, very reasonable. It is no different from what I just uh, described. Sure. So based on mm. that uh, three yes. accounts, uh, so I think the committee uh, is quite uh, confident to recommend uh, for the government to consider uh, lowering the age to three, but not saying that we go all out, uh, starting three to 17 in one go. No, not at all. I think we should do it in steps, but that is my own personal and sort of a view uh, that has to be discussed in the JSC later on. So I think from now uh, we can 
try to relax uh, for the, the lessons, have a choice. And by the end of the year, uh, when in mainland China, because they've just started to vaccinate the primary school children, so by the end of the year, they should have accumulated more than, uh, I don't know how many tens of millions of doses. Because as of yesterday, when we look at the data pool, they've reported um, in mainland China for the 3 to 11 years old, I think mostly primary school, that is 5 or 6 to 11 years old, they've already administered close to 4 million doses. But uh, knowing the speed of how mainland Chinese authority will be able to administer vaccine, so by the end of the year, I, I guess they, there should be tens of millions. So we would request the, the company to submit those data, and we should look at the safety aspect. And by that time, the phase three study should have been a bit more mature, and we have uh, further on. So I think there's no hurry for Hong Kong because there's a zero low COVID strategy. We have time, not like in America. They they basically need to do something very urgently. We, we should do it in steps. And then after the primary school children have been vaccinated, say I don't know at, at you know at beginning of next year, and then we've accumulated some more experience, then we we could start looking at the kindergarten. Uh, nursery uh, children, that is the three years old and, and so on. And by that time, uh, the, the condition might be mature enough for mainland authority and central government to say, yes, uh, we will open up the border and we will connect uh, with the world. Um, and so on. I think in Hong Kong, uh, we should really prepare for that day. And to prepare for that day, my own personal view is that we must vaccinate the children, uh, the lessons, uh, the young children and even children as young as three. Because from the experience of Singapore, uh, when they live with the virus uh, in the last four, three or four months, I have good friends there. I know all of them, all the people, so of, uh, people making the decisions. So I've been corresponding with them. That the, the, the little hole that they've got is a primary school. And in fact, the four or five very severe children cases are those not vaccinated and end up in ICU with what we call the multi inflammatory syndrome. Because although it's rare, uh, although it's mild in most, uh, you know, uh, uh, COVID in young children. I think when you open up the border, then you've got lots of and lots of children. Talk talk about uh, hundreds of thousands of children were infected. Then of course, even if it's rare, then it will occur, and, and then we, we don't want to lose those children. Yeah, Professor Lau, just yes, a quick yes, question. Yeah, um, sure. Sorry, Ada. Why why Sorry. why is it three years old and not four, five, or two or one oh, year yeah. old? Sure, sure, sure. I think that is uh, for the community to understand better, and that's how our world and society operates. We've got nursery, we've got uh, primary school, and we've got secondary school. And biologically, it also makes sense, uh, because once you turn five, uh, something happens, you know, in terms of maturity of your connection, your immunity. And two or three is also making a lot of sense, because the T cell, uh, which is a very key uh, immune cell, uh, between zero to two and three, uh, is of one uh, performance level. Once you've passed two and three years old, it's of another level. So there's both biological as well as uh, social uh, sort of uh, justification uh, to look at uh, young people, adolescents in that age bracket. You know, so uh, zero to two or three, uh, three to five, and then six to 11, and then uh, onwards to 17. So I, I think uh, that classification has got some sense in both biological and social sense. And so I, I can go into deeper analysis, but, but I, I don't think it's appropriate here. Well, well let's bring in uh, Benjamin Cowling uh, from the uh, University of Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So you, you were saying earlier on our uh, Hong Kong Today programme that uh, you didn't think there was any uh, great urgency in having younger children vaccinated and the priority should be to get uh, older people uh, uh, vaccinated. Yeah, would you like to elaborate a bit? Yeah, no, I, 
I'm just slightly concerned about what, what Professor Lau just said. Maybe, maybe in passing, we could ask him if he, if he meant it. He said once we open the border with the mainland, he's expecting hundreds of thousands of cases to occur in children. I'm not sure that's what the rest of us are expecting. Um, but if that is the expectation, then of course it, it really would be an urgent priority to vaccinate children before we open the border with the mainland. But I think maybe he was imagining about opening the border with the rest of the world at some future undefined time. Over. Professor Lau? Yeah, I think we must prepare to open to the world because Hong Kong is an international finance centre and we've got lots of students uh, studying everywhere in the world and they all come back and we, and we have a lot of business uh, with America, with Europe. I cannot dream Hong Kong uh, not opening up to the international community. We must, uh, but I think we have to do it in steps. I think first, and I think the government strategy is very clear, uh, we must open up uh, with the mainland um, sort of a community first, because uh, there's a lot of the people moving in and out um, every year. I've, I, I think I've got the numbers, I couldn't remember it right away, but it's talking about tens of millions of people moving across the border between Hong Kong and mainland China. And likewise, uh, in terms of uh, visitors from America and Europe, is all, again, is tens of millions. We must welcome them. But before we welcome them, uh, we must be prepared because Singapore, I respect them. They, they have done a wonderful job. And in fact, I think they passed the most difficult bit now. And the number of cases reported has dropped. And I've already mentioned that in the radio program. I was so pleased to see they peak around four to five, well, one day is 5,000. I don't understand that. And then it's coming down gradually to 3,000, 2,000. And this morning when I read the newspaper, it's down to 17 or 1,700. I was overjoyed. Mm. So uh, basically, uh, what a, a society needs to do, they have to make very careful calculations when they open up, whether in one, one big goal, like uh, mm. you know, to, you know to, to the whole world, or perhaps partially to some countries or some region, and then do it in steps. But Singapore is very small, obviously, but it is a very highly efficient and effective uh, uh, society in terms of, you know, jurisdiction, governance and, and, and mobilization of, mm. of different resources. Uh, I've got very uh, good friends, you know, so, so they, yeah. they've actually done it, I think they, they've got it there. And I, I, think, um, I think Benjamin Cowling was, uh, was uh, questioning your comment that uh, when we did open up, we could expect a, a, a large number of infections among younger children. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Uh, because uh, you've seen it uh, in Fujian, in, in China, they've got an outbreak, but only China can do it. They, they clamp it down and they stop below 100 cases. But in, in Singapore, they've got thousands of children. They recorded uh, at least 8,000 that uh, a few weeks or uh, months ago. And then, oh, that, um, I don't know, maybe over whatever number of thousands now. Um, and in fact, there are four of them actually gone so sick and they've gone in ICU. They've got what we call multi-inflammatory syndrome in the MSC. And as, 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 as I was uh, worrying and, and, and emailing with my friends there, and then the minister uh, over the weekend, I think it's two weekends uh, before that, there's a fifth case. So my, 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 my point is everyone will get infected when we open up to the world. Everyone moves freely. And we know it from influenza. And in fact, uh, young children, uh, why they got vaccinated not only to protect themselves, uh, but one of the aim of uh, vaccinating young, very young, you know, the five years old and below or, or primary school is to stop the school outbreak so they will not disrupt the school. It will, it will 
dampen down the transmission uh, within the society, and then the healthcare system will not be overwhelmed. And in fact, we have that experience with flu every year, and that's why uh, we've used so much effort uh, to uh, send what we call the school immunization team to primary school to nursery in the last few years. And that scheme is very successful. We push up the coverage from only 20-30% to now near 70% in primary school and nursery. So I think it's not only using the vaccine and knowing the vaccine, but the aim, it's multiple personal protection plus community needs. And because of the community needs, it's not of personal gain, and therefore the vaccine must be so safe, so safe, because the personal gain is relatively small. Uh, for young people, for, for, for primary school children in COVID. And therefore, the demand for safety is of utmost importance. Okay, I think, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, yeah, Ada wants to ask a question, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Ben, ben, ben Cowling, so, no, it's, it's okay, it's fine. Um, um, and Ben Cowling, did you want to just come back in at that point? No, yeah, I think, I think it's very clear. Thank you, Professor Lam. I, I think we all understand that in, in the long term, we have to return to normal sooner or later. Um, and the Singapore model is an excellent model doing that step by step rather than just relaxing everything dropping everything all at once and having a flood of infections to just uh, gradually step by step to relax measures one by one but the problem we face in hong kong is that the government's stated objective is zero covid in order to sustain the bubble with the main with the mainland if we open the border to the mainland that's great and and i hope that it can be sustainable for for a while but if we then open to the rest of the world we'll lose the bubble with the mainland because the mainland will not tolerate uh, a bubble with Hong Kong if we have even a single local transmission, I think, in Hong Kong. Certainly if we're having, if we're having infections in Hong Kong, as Professor Lau outlined, that will happen if we, if we stop the on-arrival quarantines for the rest of the world. So we're in a quandary. We, we can't have both open border with the mainland and also open border with the rest of the world uh, until sometime in the future when, when mainland China also decide that they're going to stop following the zero COVID strategy, but I've seen no sign that that's on the horizon. Ada? Yeah, uh, uh, Professor Lau, you know, there are a number of strategies that the government has been uh, pushing to uh, increase the vaccination rate. So between, you know, asking people to do the third jab and asking the older folks, you know, those above 70 to to go for vaccine and also uh, for younger children, which one is more important? Yeah, I think um, we should not sort of put one against the other. They are all important. Um, and I think Hong Kong's got the resources and the citizens are smart enough uh, to be briefed and on the underlying reasons uh, for the whole people. Obviously, that is of primary importance. Because uh, once they get infected, their death rate is uh, enormous. I mean, over 80 years of age, uh, three out of 10 will die. You know, that is uh, horrific numbers. And then for the third jab, uh, it's really prepared for that day when we open up the border to the world. But of course, you understand it. Uh, even for the third jab, uh, you are going to get an infection. I'm so sorry. But, but then you will reduce the severity by a, a number of percentage points. So, so the whole idea is to make the number of severe cases as low as possible so our healthcare system can cope. Because I will not under any of a delusion that we will stop the infection. There's no way we can stop it. So all the strategy is to decrease the number of severe cases so the healthcare system will not collapse. And then we'll be able to sustain what we call back to normalcy. Um, That is a very tough call. And then for the children, it's the same. I've already quoted in Singapore with such a highly effective, efficient 
and governance and with all the highly skilled technocrats, uh, they still had a very hard beat. They nearly collapsed, uh, but they stopped at 70, 80% capacity being filled up and they just so tough. I, I really admire them. Okay, uh, interesting. You mentioned the uh, third uh, vaccine dose there, because that, that's one of the issues that uh, was uh, on the list uh, to bring up on this morning's program. Just looking at the latest figures, uh, the Hong Kong vaccination dashboard on the government website. So, I think as of yesterday, there were 49,931 people that had their third uh, vaccine dose. Um, um, Benjamin Cowling, is that uh, what do you what do you think of that figure? I think as, as we move towards a, a plan in the longer term of, of opening up and relaxing the COVID measures, we'll certainly benefit a lot from having a uh, high coverage, not only of double dose, but of triple dose uh, people. I think ultimately we'll all have a chance to get a third dose, not just the older adults and, and the priority groups. Uh, but again, right now, because we have a zero COVID strategy, I think it's okay to do it slowly and steadily. Um, Therefore, when we do have uh, an outbreak in the community, I think there'll be a rush of people to get top-up doses and booster doses. And at that point, uh, we, we may not have the capacity to, to satisfy the demand. But right now, um, I, I think that the, the progress is good. It's, it's slow and steady, and the third doses do, do benefit us in terms of protecting against uh, uh, a larger number of severe cases if or when we have community transmission again. I see, though, that uh, so at the moment, the uh, well, total population, total eligible population uh, with the first vaccine dose is at just under 70 percent. Uh, but uh, the, the latest uh, daily figures of doses administered um, was uh, first dose um, 4,191. Uh, that's that's a lot less than it was uh, at the peak, isn't it? I mean, um, we're, we're, we're not doing particularly well with uh, increasing the vaccination rate. No, it's really dropped off, and it, the, the elderly are still very vulnerable. I think in, in over the age of 80, it's only 17% fully vaccinated, 1-7, uh, not 70, 1-7. Um, mm. So it's, it's really very low uptake in the oldest adults. And as Professor Lau mentioned, the mortality rate of, of COVID is highest in that group. It will be really catastrophic if we have a large community outbreak now, uh, eight, nine months into a vaccination program. Uh, if we have a lot of cases, particularly in older adults, uh, there will be a lot of severe COVID, and that could have been avoided with higher vaccine coverage. But at the same time, when we're pursuing a zero COVID strategy, when there's no COVID in the community, I can understand hesitancy. I, I even heard someone use the word rational hesitancy, that when there's no risk of COVID imminently, um, and we know that there's a very low, not zero, a very low chance of, of, a, of a more serious side effect uh, in, in older adults. I, I can understand the decision of some people to delay vaccination until there's a more imminent risk. But of course, the problem is if you wait too long and then, and then there's an outbreak all of a sudden, it may be too late to, to, to be able to go and get vaccinated. Um, pro Professor Lau, ha have we actually exhausted all possibilities to get the older population to go for a vaccine? I, I know that um, you know the government has really spent uh, much effort to do so, but um, I actually know friends, senior friends, uh, who are in their late 70s, and they still don't really want to go and get their jab. And I think this is a behaviour issue, and it's not a very rational kind of behaviour. Um, what, what do you think? Well, um, my position is quite clear. Uh, what I can do is keep on explaining uh, to the community, to the citizens, what I know, um, and then let them to make a choice. And I respect your 
friend who, who despite uh, all the information given, and he still or she make a choice of not getting that vaccine. Um, I think choice is extremely important, and no matter how we push the vaccination, I think there's a line uh, we have to be very careful before we cross. Uh, that is uh, sort of mandatory coercion uh, and so on. Um, at the end of the day, um, why Hong Kong still able to thrive uh, is uh, we are as transparent as we can, as open as we can, uh, giving as much information repeatedly as we can, and let people make a choice. Uh, I think mainland also adopted that policy. I don't think they actually coerce uh, anyone to take the vaccination. Uh, of course, I do not understand uh, their strategy, how they actually manage to get the vaccination rate uh, as high as that. And in fact, in some other countries, the elderly vaccination coverage is extremely high as well. You know, in some of the European countries and so on, they can do it. And I, I think some countries cannot do it. Some countries can do it. There must be uh, some peculiar, as Ada mentioned, behavioral perception issues. Uh, but I, I, I really treasure uh, not to cross that line. Uh, but one day, if we need to cross that line, we still have to debate and, and have to think about it, why we need to do it. Okay. Um, and, and we have to lay open for the public to understand the pros and cons um, and so on. And let, let's have, a, let's have some discussion in open. I, I think okay. that is so important. Okay. Good. That's what we'll do. Um, um, I have to say thank you very much for joining us, uh, uh, Professor Lau Yu Long. We've got to take a break for the news now. Um, um, Benjamin Cowling, uh, please uh, stay with us. Um, Get in touch uh, on Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Quick look at, at the weather. Uh, sunny periods today. Top temperature about 26 degrees. Uh, it's currently 22. Humidity 68%. Before he was even appointed to his position, determined and put in writing that President Trump was responsible for the events of January 6th. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Backchat with uh, Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about uh, some uh, COVID-19 uh, updates uh, with uh, government advisers agreeing to recommend lowering the age limit for the Sinovac vaccine to three-year-old uh, children and uh, older uh, Still with us, we have uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Um, just before we talk to Professor Cowling again, um, an email here, a couple of emails from listener Simon, says, uh, why should I vaccinate my five-year-old if the older people in Hong Kong can't be bothered? And another one, if I get my five-year-old vaccinated, will he be able to stop wearing a mask in school from 7.30am to 3pm? I worry that he might wear a mask for years to come. Um, uh, uh, Benjamin Cowling, so, yeah, actually, we heard you there at the top of the news. Uh, that was uh, following your uh, conversation with our Hong Kong Today programme earlier um, in the morning. Um, so before nine o'clock, uh, Professor Lau was talking about um, all the evidence. There seems to be a, quite a great deal of evidence regarding the use of the Sinovac vaccine. Um, not so much about uh, BioNTech, but obviously, uh, you know, a lot of people in uh, Hong Kong have had the BioNTech jab. Um, what's your understanding about that situation? When will we be able to make a judgment whether uh, BioNTech can be used uh, for younger children as well? 
I'm, I'm not sure what, what information was provided to the committee or what information they've requested. Uh, from what Professor Lau described on, on the sign of our vaccine, uh, they looked at reports of the occurrence of adverse events in the mainland after administering millions of doses to younger children and then watching very carefully if, if there were any unusual events occurring. And, and what they reported was that they didn't hear any reports of unusual events occurring. So that's very reassuring. Um, for, for BioNTech, I think the same has been done in the U.S., uh, in Hong Kong, we had an experience with a BioNTech vaccine in adolescents, the 12 to 17-year-olds, where there was an increase in the rates of myocarditis hospitalizations. There were quite a number of those hospitalizations above the baseline rate, particularly after the second dose, particularly in boys. Mm-hmm. And that led to a change in recommendation in Hong Kong to only give the, the first dose for BioNTech vaccine in, in that age group. And I think Taiwan just, just also followed the same policy. And, of course, the United Kingdom's only giving one dose to that age group. But in other parts of the world where they use BioNTech in adolescence, they're still giving two doses, maybe judging that the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks in, in that age group. Uh, so even if there is a, a low risk of a, of a more serious reaction, uh, it's still outweighed by the, the, the benefits of being vaccinated and being protected against severe COVID. Now, for the sign of our vaccine, I'm sure that if or when it starts being used in Hong Kong in younger children, we'll also monitor for whether there are any rare adverse events. We will keep a very close eye on it. And if we see something that maybe wasn't identified in the mainland or in other parts of the world that are using Sinovac, then I think we'll be very quick in Hong Kong to, to, to raise a concern. And then uh, as with the BioNTech vaccine, with the adolescents switching back to one dose, that, that there's always the option of, of, uh, of having a change in policy if there was anything to be concerned about. But it, it all sounds very reassuring from what Professor Lau said. But but I still think that um, you know for our elderly uh, groups in Hong Kong, uh, we still need to push a little bit further. So how might you um, incentivize uh, those above eighty? You know, seventeen percent of them have only been vaccinated. You know, how could we still increase uh, the vaccination rate? Well, the, the the only way that I can think of to to really change change the the, the view of, of some of these older people that are going to get vaccinated is is unfortunately to, to give advice contrary to, to the government um, messaging. So that the government's been very clear that we have a zero COVID policy and that we're going to sustain it, we're going to be successful. We're not going to have many cases in the community in the coming six months, even the coming year. Um, and that puts people off getting vaccinated because maybe they, they don't see the urgency or, or the risk. So my, my advice would be to actually change that message slightly and to say that we're, we're aiming for it. The government's going to aim for zero COVID. We're going to aim to keep cases at as low a level as possible uh, because we want to have that make the open border with the mainland and so on and all the, the public health benefits of, of no COVID. But there's also a risk that we may not be able to stop transmission if it does get into Hong Kong. And in that scenario, uh, everyone can benefit from being vaccinated. But that's quite a different different message because it, it, it highlights the risk of of zero COVID not being sustainable, which um, which is a different uh, a different perspective, perhaps. Um, so, what, what one thing that, that does concern me slightly is if if there, there's a, some criteria that have to be satisfied for for opening the the border with the mainland, if vaccination coverage is among those criteria, um, I, uh, I I think that, that, that raising the vaccine uptake in the elderly for me, would be the public health priority. But if it's easier to satisfy that criteria by vaccinating other groups, 
then that may be uh, a policy decision that, that's taken, but I really hope that's not the case. Okay, well, a, a few more emails uh, on these issues. Uh, uh, James writes, um, Dear Backchat, uh, Professor Lau states that we should not put each group against uh, one another. However, he knows full well, as does the government, that it's all about vaccinating the most vulnerable group, i.e. the elderly, and on that front their strategy has been truly woeful. Vaccinating kids is just a distraction from the core issue of the low rate of vaccination of the elderly. The time for stricter measures for those elderly not vaccinated is well overdue. Allied with a timeline for opening up, no doubt that will see higher vaccination rates in all groups, not just the elderly. That from James. Uh, Simon writes, um, complete waste of time. Hong Kong won't open up until the end of 2022-3. When they decide to open up, I will decide to vaccinate my child. And... Um, Karen says, uh, dear Backchat, uh, some of us got vaccinated early in hope of Hong Kong opening up and being able to travel and see family. That didn't happen. Why should we trust anything that is said? It is cruel and unscientific to make it a condition of seeing your family that you have to be locked up for three weeks on your return. Not everyone is financially or mentally able to do this. There is no point getting a third vaccine unless there is a time frame for opening up. While we are all trapped here, there is no point. Um, actually, uh, Professor Cowling, you've, you've questioned the necessity of, uh, of three weeks uh, quarantine uh, on return to Hong Kong, haven't you? Um, what do you think about it now? Oh, I, I, I haven't changed my view. The 14 days is, is more than enough. Uh, we, we have seen a number of day 19 cases. I think there was a day 19 case last week. And again, it was a within hotel transmission event, not a long incubation period. Um, but there, there does have to be a, a, a trade-off between uh, the restrictions on individuals that are travelling, and uh, in terms to in order to minimise the risk of, of COVID in the community. Uh, but I've I've said a number of times that 14 days would be sufficient. Well, lately we see that um, you know the mutations of the virus um, have become. How would I say more contagious in the sense that if you're in your own hotel room and you have been jogging on on your bike or well cycling stationary bikes, and um, you know as we have seen in Tongchong, um, the person in the next room could exhale um, a large amount of the virus laden air such that he gets infected. Is that is that unusual? Or is that just because of the ventilation in hotel rooms? I think there's been a number of hotel transmission events over the past year or so. Um, there's been a number of times this has happened. I don't think we fully understand how any of the events have happened. So you described what we think happened in this particular case, but I, I don't think there's been a very detailed investigation. There certainly hasn't been a detailed report describing all of the different possibilities and, and the evidence for or against each of those possibilities. There was just a, you know, a, a, a press conference where it, some, some of the details were explained. So I, I think it does deserve further explanation. But it's also clear that, that the designated hotels are not ideal facilities for on-arrival quarantine. Uh, they were an ad hoc measure, given that we, we prefer to do quarantine outside the home because home quarantine has its own limitations. So we prefer to do hotel quarantine. That makes a lot of sense, uh, particularly a year ago. But now recognizing that that uh, there is this risk of transmission within the hotels. And if a person's infected, if a, if a quarantine is in fact the end of their stay, then they'll be out in the community by the time 
uh, they, they develop symptoms and become contagious, and, and, and that poses a risk to Hong Kong. So I, I've ad- advocated a number of times for construction of a specialised facility, uh, maybe near the airport. They've done that in Guangzhou and, and Shanghai, a specialised facility for on-arrival quarantine, which is safer. It would be like an upscale Penny's Bay, an upmarket Penny's Bay. You could build it with a lot of different types of rooms and, and different price points and so on, and it would solve the problem, firstly, of the risk of within hotel transmission in the quarantine hotels, and secondly, would solve the problem of capacity, where we only have 11,000 rooms at the moment at any one time, and that's, that's not enough to satisfy the demand from, from people travelling. Um, what's your assessment of this uh, situation with the, uh, the Cathay Pacific pilots uh, uh, coming back from Frankfurt? It seems that Frankfurt might be, might be problematic in terms of uh, infections uh, arising from uh, people who've gone there. Yeah, there was this one cluster from Frankfurt, but I don't know if there was a particularly high risk in Frankfurt or if that was just a, there may be an unlucky coincidence, an unlucky set of events. I'm not sure why there's so much focus on that base specifically, because... Uh, pilots coming back from from anywhere else in the world, in theory, could face similar risks. In my opinion, I just I feel really sorry for Cathay Pacific because uh, all, all the other airlines in the world are getting back to, to normal. I think in the US they're at 90% of their pre-pandemic uh, flight capacity and flight numbers. Uh, in, in other parts of the world, is, is really returning to normal, and in Hong Kong we're still stuck with very limited numbers of flights and, and, and very limited business for Cathay Pacific. And now with pilots being asked to, to transfer to be based abroad uh, rather than based in Hong Kong, is, is really, it's going to be really tough. So uh, I guess this Christmas we don't really see a lot of um, you know, the children uh, who are studying in UK or US uh, coming back to Hong Kong for Christmas. Uh, uh, Christmas is fine perhaps, but uh, for next summer, do you think that... Um, they still need a 21-day quarantine, and perhaps the government should look into having more hotels instead of the 11,000 rooms um, capacity it has now. So I, I think that the quarantine could, could come down to 14 days any time, because 21 days is, is longer than it needs to be. So it could come down to 14 days any time. In terms of the number of hotels, my understanding is that a lot of hotels, a lot of other hotels have been interested to participate in the designated quarantine hotel scheme but it may be not suitable for one reason or another. And so there may not be a lot of additional capacity that can be added to the existing 11,000 rooms in that scheme. And as we've seen, some of the hotels are still having these, these transmission events um, in, in, in recent months. So I, I, I think a, a specialised facility, if it could be constructed, would make a big difference to that and would make a big difference to the sustainability of the zero COVID approach that's... Uh, the, the government's so keen on. But we, we had two years to think about that, and we built Penny's Bay, but I guess Penny's Bay, there aren't any facilities, and it's certainly not five-star. Um, I, I really don't think that um, the government can build something within a few months, uh, so that, you know, it all makes sense. Well, they built Penny's Bay within three months, I think, at least the first phase of it, and then they added on a lot more rooms fairly quickly. So they could they could expand the Penny's Bay facility, they could build another similar facility somewhere else, um, and it, for sure you could you could make it a little bit nicer, and, and then you could have different price points for, for people choosing to stay there. And I'm not saying to, to eliminate all of the, the designated quarantine hotels. We could have a, a lot of capacity in, a, in another Penny's Bay, and we could also still retain some of the designated quarantine hotels, maybe the five-star hotels as well. So I, I think we, we need to look at increasing the capacity and also 
making the whole process safer. Okay, well, thanks very much for speaking to us on this morning's uh, programme. Um, Benjamin Cowling there, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks very much. And uh, thank you uh, earlier to, before nine o'clock, uh, Lao Yulong, uh, Chair Professor of Paediatrics at the Department of Paediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, also at the University of Hong Kong. And Professor Lao is a member of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine advisory panel um uh, we're going to turn to another uh, covid related issue in a moment and that is another uh, um, uh, quarantine hotel for domestic helpers is going to become available from next month just before we do that a few more messages from listeners on our facebook page John writes that hotels are designed with common and connected services and not suitable for isolation. Mark writes, the government is looking at vaccinating five-year-olds because it wants to give the false impression that it has a plan and policy, but in reality it is again setting itself up for a fall. As in Hong Kong, if you are vaccinated, there is no benefit. And for the over-80s, pay them with a cash handout and a bag of rice. We know that that is a motivation factor. And David writes... Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, we would have thought nothing about having a vaccination and uh, gone ahead and had it. But now we're hearing about uh, court cases and lies told by big manufacturers, uh, seeing we are uh, hearing a, a research institute talking about trials of different vaccines with kids and the effects that have uh, happened. A vaccine is good, but this vaccine and the research have been pushed uh, much too fast. And there have been many contradictory facts about vaccinated children um right uh, joining us on the line now we have thomas chan who's chairman of the hong kong union of employment agencies uh, good morning to you good morning good morning so, or. so thanks for joining us uh, so uh, we're talking about um uh, this uh, new hotel that's going to uh, come online in uh, sha tin uh, for domestic helpers. Uh, this is the Courtyard uh, Hong Kong uh, in Sha Tin, um, uh, run by the Marriott, I think. Uh, so uh, it's going to provide um, a few extra rooms to, compared with, with what we have now because it's actually going to replace the Silka uh, Chun Wan Hotel, isn't it, uh, as a designated isolation hotel for helpers. Um, so uh, what's your ass assessment of the situation? Is it going to you know, improve matters significantly? Uh, yes, uh, for, for, for the rooms available, uh, it's a bit more. Of course, it's not really 500 because usually for government uh, designated hotels, the real number of uh, rooms available is about 75 to 80% of the total rooms. But anyway, it's still a few more rooms than uh, what it offers by Silk Hotels. Uh, however, uh, the booking system, uh, I would like to say, is still as messy as the one uh, in uh, ah, right. last week at Rambler mm. Hotel. Mm. Because uh, as what we experienced yesterday morning, uh, lots of people at 9.30, they can't go into the website Perhaps I think that there is really some uh, group of people they can use or apply some kind of special apps 
to occupy the internet. Uh, that's why a lot of people, of course, and at the same time, because of the limited rooms available, also, uh, 95% of the people, they are still let disappointed. Nobody can get the room. Only few people with special skills or lucky ones, uh, they can really get the room. Uh, so, as employment industry, we are not happy with this kind of arrangement. As what we always advocating, we advise the government to introduce an, another system to allocate rooms more fairly to the people, like the, depending on the visa Israel's time, that's more reliable and more convenient for every employer. Um, Th- Thomas Chen, can you tell us uh, exactly how many rooms are there now for uh, quarantine uh, of uh, domestic helpers? In this hotel? No, approximately, the total number. Total, oh, okay. Uh, for for this hotel, it's about, if the real number is about 400, and then a uh, rumbler is also about only about 400, and then a uh, Panic Bay, I think it's about 700 to 800 total. That's the total number available currently in, in the market. So around 1,600 rooms, and they are all booked up, um, yes, and, yes. you know, for, for the next few months, or uh, for how many weeks? Uh, as what we understand, at least uh, for, for, for these two hotels, they will last for three months first, because usually the government, uh, they have an agreement with the hotel operator. Uh, three months first, after three, up, uh, after three months, that's the time to, to renegotiate whether they will continue to offer service or not. Right. And uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, do, do you know uh, how many uh, maids are waiting um, patiently in the Philippines? Uh, they yeah, have been uh, hired by employers, but they really can't come yet? Yeah. Uh, as what we estimate, currently the workers with visas, but stranded in either Philippines or in Indonesia, are still about, about 6,000 something. Maybe some media friends, they are wondering, how come uh, two months ago you are talking about 6,000? Right now you are still talking about 6,000. Yes, that's true. Because every day, even in Hong Kong, the daily application of new visa for those workers in Indonesia and in the Philippines is over 50 to to 100. So uh, on one hand, some people are come. But on the other hand, some new visas are... added every day. So the total number doesn't really decrease sharply or obviously. And Mr. Chan, this is not counting the mates who would like to go back to the Philippines to have their holiday, to meet their families and then to come back because they have not been able to do so and they have been continuing to work uh, without any leave. Um, Is is that the case? Uh, Yeah, most of the Workers working in Hong Kong because of the employ uh, of the quarantine requirement. Uh, most of uh, I think most of the workers they just stay and extend the visa. They they don't go home for vacation. On one hand, to prevent being infected there in their own country, or on the other hand, for employer they can save money. To be honest. 
We we have over a quarter million of mates in Hong Kong. If only a small fraction of them want to go back for their annual leave, it means that we need many many more quarantine hotels for yeah, them. That that's true. But uh, for for those uh, working in Hong Kong, uh, going home and come back, uh, it's uh, another group because for those vaccinated in Hong Kong, they don't need to be confined in those three specially designated. Uh, quarantine places. They can choose any other designated hotels, like Hong Kong residents coming from England, from America, from anywhere. So, uh, for them to get a chance to 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 secure a room is much more uh, higher than those uh, vaccinated in Indonesia or in the Philippines. So there's a shortage of helpers uh, available at the moment. Um, w- w- what is that effect? Is that having on wages? Uh, I think uh, the wages will get higher and higher again because recently uh, Hong Kong government, uh, I mean uh, Labour Department and Immigration, uh, only last week uh, they, they sent a notice to all agencies and of course to also to, uh, to, to workers. They will adapt a more strict policy to those workers, transfer employers in Hong Kong. Uh, it's what they, they name it, job hopping. Of course, I don't agree this term because this term will give them a bad image. Uh, it's, it's not a, a negative uh, labeling about workers who transfer the employers. Because for every termination of contract, there are too many, too many reasons between workers and employers. Some comes from the employer, some comes from the worker. But currently, it seems uh, Labor Department and Hong Kong Immigration, they only took one-sided view. All workers transfer from employer A to B is for job hopping. 100%. That's not true. Mm. And then uh, also, according to our members' experience, since mid-October until now, I think over 95% of the application for transfer of employer are rejected and they will be <coughs> asked to go back. It means for those locally available workers will be greatly reduced by this new policy. Then employers, finally, they will be the victims of this new policy because they have to fight more seriously on those very, very limited number of workers available in the market. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the salary will increase, the service fee will also increase. Uh, we right. are now... But be- before the immigration, the- uh, Thomas Chen, before the immigration department stepped in, I heard that, uh, you know, a maid could, uh, could ask for like 7,000 Hong Kong per month on, uh, yes, yes, on for, for job hopping. Right. Yeah, uh, for some workers, uh, if they are lucky enough, of course, they can get higher pay. But I have to say that's the market force. Because of the supply never meet the demand. That's why uh, there are more employers fighting for one worker and then uh, increase the salary. So suppose the, the person who really initiates to increase the salary for the worker, who are the ones? The employers, employers, for example, three employers fighting for one worker, one is over 
minimum salary, 4,600 something. The other one will offer 5,000. Uh, the last one offer 5,500. So how the worker will choose? That's the market force. And then the one who really push up the salary is the employer. So it's employer because they want to fight with other employers. Sure. Okay, well, thanks very much for speaking to us on the programme this morning. Uh, Thomas Chan there, Chairman of the Hong Kong Union of Employment Agencies. Um, and just before we bring uh, this morning's programme to a close, uh, another email here relating to uh, our short topic uh, on yesterday's programme, which was uh, management of the uh, wild boar population. Um, Neil writes, uh, in the late 1990s, I was part of the Sai Kung pig hunting team, a collection of local gentry and a pack of mangy dogs. My role was that of a safety marshal. Based on complaints from local inhabitants, normally about destroyed crops in the villages, hunts would be arranged. Uh, more than 50% were, were, were unsuccessful. Sorry, The occasional boar was killed. On the hunts I participated in, no boar was shot and left injured. All were killed with one shot. This surprised me. The local gentry sure could shoot straight. Local golf courses called for the assistance of the pig hunting team. One team member would uh, drive the golf cart and the other riding shotgun. Have you seen the Jasper Carrot sketch of uh, the mole and the shotgun? On one of the first golf course hunts, a 400-pound boar was shot, later consumed in a Wan Chai restaurant. Hmm. Afterwards, I found out that any boar shot were to be handed over to AFCD so they could measure the boar and assess stomach contents, which was then followed. In early 2000, I left the team. Uh, I believed that hunting in the hills was dangerous as more and more people were hill walking and, uh, and uh, other methods of control controlling the boars should be used before shooting them, such as electric fences. It might need to be a long fence, but in many countries electric fences have proved more than capable of keeping out wild animals, even elephants, and with fewer and fewer natural predators the number of boars will increase. I consider electric fences should be used first, keep the pigs in the country parks, capture and relocate those that escape, neuter and release. Operations can be conducted, but should be done so continuously and as a Last resort, cull. Many countries conduct culling of wild animals when populations get out of control. But as yet, I don't consider the boar population to be out of control. Once you get to know them, they are very intelligent animals. Try electric fences first. Thank you. That's from Neil. Um, thank you to uh, everybody who wrote in. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And a quick look at the weather before we go to the news summary and uh, morning brew. Um, sunny periods, top temperature day around 26 degrees, moderate east to northeasterly winds. The outlook mainly cloudy in the next few days, and there will be sunny periods uh, during the daytime, uh, becoming appreciably cooler early next week. It's currently 23 degrees, humidity 67%. I will help fight the virus. I will protect Hong Kong. The government has launched the Leave Home Safe mobile app for everyone to keep visit records. Remember to use the app to scan QR codes of designated venues. Visit records will only be kept in your phone. If you went somewhere possibly visited by a confirmed patient, the app will alert you and give health advice according to different situations. Use the app together. Feel at ease when going out. Let's fight the virus. Scan with Leave Home Safe. The news summary with Andrew Tarovsky. 
President Xi Jinping has told U.S. leader Joe Biden that the two nations must improve communication and face challenges together amid heightened tensions. Speaking at the virtual summit, Mr. Xi said that he was happy to see Mr. Biden, who he called his old friend, and that he was ready to work together. Mr. Biden said the rivals should seek to avoid conflict. An epidemiologist said COVID-19 vaccine coverage in the elderly is more critical than in children. Professor Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health was commenting after government advisors recommended allowing children as young as three to receive the Sinovac jab. And a U.S. journalist sentenced to 11 years in prison in Myanmar only last week has been released from jail. Danny Fenster, who worked for the online news site Frontier Myanmar, is on his way back to America. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, interpreter of Beethoven, as well as also shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really fun class, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decide of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is the morning brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Tuesday here on Morning Brew. I'm Phil Whelan. It's almost the season to be jolly. To get things going in style, we present to you the first folk world music festival. Or rather, organiser Mark Rawson does a 10-10 today. After that, more music and news Aussie style with our man Jared Watts. And after 11, Dr. Merrin Pierce will be discussing the benefits. Natural History Museums with Dr. Anna Goldman from the University of Hong Kong. Join them on Facebook Live. Join in if you can. Bizofuturist Maurice Mesolowski will be with us after 12 to demand proof of concept regarding the notion that's doing the rounds, of course, that the metaverse could make reality, whatever that actually is, disappear. David Bowie classic to kick off Rebel Rebel 1974. 